This is Theology for Teens with Nathan LaValle. Thank you for clicking on this video and podcast. I'm very excited because today is the last episode in a series that we've been doing on logic. If you want to watch the series, you can find it on whatever platform you're currently listening on. YouTube is good because it also has visuals accompanying with it. We're going to be talking about a few closing remarks, but first let me review what we've covered in this series so far. We've talked about knowledge and truth and how we know that anything is true at all. We've talked about how to evaluate evidence, premises, premises, conclusions, and premises of course being the building blocks of logic and reason itself. And then we talked about propositional logic, nine laws of propositional logic. The first three talk about if-then statements. The next three talk about and, a little bit different, and then the final three talk about or. With these nine laws, you're equipped with pretty much everything you need to do logic. Now, I had originally planned on this series of logic being something like 10 lessons longer, but I realized that we've done everything we need to, I think, for us to move on into the place I really want to get to, which is how do we know what's true with regard to theology? How do we know what's true with regard to God, to first-order issues, second-order issues, sin-related issues? How do we know what's true? And so we're going to be getting there. After today, we're going to be doing a little mini-series, three-week series. At the end of this episode, I'm going to actually tell you what that is, so stay tuned. Don't click off this video. But for today, let's put a bow on logic. So we're going to be talking about something called an informal fallacy. And specifically, I'm going to tell you four informal fallacies that I think young Christians use a lot. We don't want to use informal fallacies. So we've talked about fallacies, front side, back side. These are formal. These are really elementary and rudimentary formational with regard to the propositional laws of logic. But informal fallacies are a little different. They're very specific. They're used in certain situations. Sometimes they're related to other disciplines. Other things come in and mix with logic. Now, the truth of the matter is that if you really have the nine laws of logic mastered, you don't really need informal logic. You should know just about everything you need to know. But knowing these four pieces of informal logic, especially for people who have had a harder time with the nine laws of logic, should prove very helpful for you. So apply these. Apply them in two ways. Don't do these informal fallacies. And second, be wary that many of your peers will probably utilize these kinds of informal fallacies, even the ones that are atheist, and say that they don't have any fallacious thinking. So be on guard. The first one is called appeal to emotion. And in appeal to emotion, we present emotion instead of argumentation as our reason for concluding something. So an example of this might be God is a horrible bully. God is terrible because he flooded the earth. He killed everyone except the people in the ark. And then he ordered his people to go off and murder innocent people. God's bad. And if you believe in God, you're bad. You're a bad person if you believe in that God. Have I actually made any kind of argument here? Premise, 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 conclusion. No, I haven't. All I've done is appeal to your emotion. Well, by golly, I don't want to be a bad person. So if believing that means I'm a bad person, then I guess I shouldn't believe that. But does this have anything to do with God's existence or worthiness to be praised? No. And is it possible 
that we're actually misconstruing the information. So we've bypassed evaluating the premises. We've bypassed premises altogether. We've just asserted something and we've slapped emotion on it. And the problem and the insidiousness of this is that emotion is powerful. And young people are tremendously convinced by emotion. I was reminded of this last night as our young people were talking about what they like and dislike about talking about logic and the new format we're doing. And one of the things is, you know, it's not emotional. And I get that. Young people are emotional. We're all emotional to some degree, especially the people who say they're not emotional. Those people are usually emotional. We need to have good understanding of our own emotions. We need to be emotionally healthy and emotionally mature. But emotions should not be the foundation for your beliefs because emotions are transient and they are going to change with the wind and with the waves. So the foundation of our belief should be something sturdy. It's the rock, the cornerstone of Christ, and we can only understand that through logic. And on top of that, the scaffolding we're going to build, you know, the top of our building that has gardens on it, this is emotion. And we need both. But which one's the foundation? It's not emotion. A great response to this topic of whether or not God's a bully is actually a book called Is God a Vindictive Bully? It's by a guy by the name of Paul Copen, Reconciling Portrayals of God in the Old and New Testament. I recently was exposed to this book through a podcast. I heard this author speaking. Seems like an incredible book. So if you're interested in this topic of Is God a Vindictive Bully? This book seems great. So I would recommend it to you, uh, even though I haven't read it personally. I've looked into it just a little bit. So that's that. Now, is an appeal to emotion a good reason to say that this person is wrong? If they're appealing to emotion, does that mean they're wrong? Well, no, it doesn't mean they're wrong. A great example of this would be the commercials that you may have seen for not smoking and not doing meth. They are purely emotional. If you've ever seen one of these commercials, it might make your gut wrench. It might make you cry. But does that mean that it's a good idea to smoke meth? Does that mean that it's a good idea to smoke a cigarette? Why no, it doesn't. In fact, what they've done is exactly what I've explained, which is having a foundation, a sturdy foundation of logic, and on top of that, incorporating emotion to make what is a logically sound argument very powerful. Christians, we need to do this. There are some people who will be won by logic. There will be some people who will truly, profoundly come to Christ because you've introduced them to the concept of the rationality of the faith. But there are other people who won't come to anything by rationality. They won't come to anything by logic. They will come to it through emotion and experience. There are some people who are just made that way. And although I would love to teach them logic and reason, because I think that that is going to strengthen their faith, sometimes we need to implement emotion, but we need to make sure that we're using it responsibly and that we actually have an argument. So if someone presses in, we can say, well, hold on. Yeah, I did appeal to emotion there, but I need you to know that there's actually a foundation under that. Let me explain that to you and unpack it. So we're prepared for that. Okay. That's informal fallacy number one. Let's move on to number two. Number two is called, drum roll, the false dilemma. And the false dilemma, someone proposes you can either have this or believe this or do this or have this other thing or believe this other thing or do this other thing. And in the false dilemma, those two options are proposed as the only two options. You have to choose one or the other. Now, 
If you know the nine laws of logic, you're going to know that this in and of itself is fallacious because that's not how or statements work. You would actually have to express that a little differently. And there's not a whole lot of things that are truly binary that aren't definitionally binary. So for example, does God exist or does God not exist? That's definitionally binary in that those are truly the only two options. But other things are not binary. And when the false dilemma is utilized, it's utilized in this way. Let me give you an example that is really common. Tell me in the comments if you've ever said this to your parents. You either accept me or you don't love me. Have you ever said that? You either accept me or you don't love me. When I asked our students that last night, several of them raised their hand. That is a common thing that youth will often draw on. That's a common thing in our culture today. The problem is this is a false dilemma. I could do both. I could both accept you and not love you. We know this from our nine laws of logic. Also, I might love you but not accept you. It's not one or the other. I might do neither. Maybe the third option is I'm just going to walk away from you. I'm not saying whether I love you or not, and I'm not saying whether I accept you or not. So this is a false dilemma. We would be wise to not utilize false dilemmas because they're manipulative. In fact, the Pharisees, the scribes, were common in using false dilemmas to try to entrap Jesus. An example of this, you can find it in Luke 20. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not to pay taxes to Caesar? So in other words, they're saying, is your allegiance to Caesar or is it to God? Because if you say Caesar, we're going to stone you. And if you say God, guess what? Caesar's troops are going to storm, are going to stone you. Jesus doesn't play into their false dilemma, and his answer is profound. Check it out if you want to look at a good way to respond to someone with a false dilemma. That's Luke 20. You can also look at Genesis 3 for the first ever false dilemma when the serpent tempts Eve. Uh, he presents a false dilemma to Eve. You can check that out as well. Number three, we have the straw man argument. In the straw man argument, we argue against a weak and an accurate version of someone's argument in order to topple it over very easily. Now, I don't know about you, but if I get in a fist fight with a scarecrow, right, clothing stuffed with straw suspended by a stick, mimicking the silhouette of a human, if I get in a fist fight, I'd have to really be bad to lose that fist fight. And the same is true when we use straw man arguments. Now, you might think, well, then I'll always win. But the problem is that when you utilize a straw man argument, you don't actually win because you didn't actually beat the person you're arguing against. You didn't actually show them that their argument is wrong. And so we don't want to utilize straw man arguments. In fact, we want to do what's called a steel man argument. We make their argument better. We concede certain things we don't have to. We actually you know, make it harder to tumble and topple their argument, and then we annihilate it from there. And if you can do that, then you can be pretty sure that their argument actually isn't a good one, that your argument is indeed superior to their argument. So don't do straw men arguments. And number four here of informal logic is circular reasoning or um, begging the question, some call this. This is when the conclusion of an argument is stated as one of the premises of the argument. So if you know the nine laws of logic, this makes sense. You can't do this. You can't say the Bible says that it's true. Therefore, the Bible is true. You can't do this. This is circular. It goes around and around and around. And circular arguments aren't good ones because they don't originate in something solid. 
Now, despite the fact that this argument I just presented is true, it's not impressive. There's not really a way to evaluate the evidence outside of itself. And so we don't want to do circular reasoning. We want to make sure that we're actually laying out premises that come to a conclusion that's separate from the premises. This is a good argument. Now, let me move on to talking about two other things. We're going to talk about another way of kind of doing logic that we haven't talked about yet, really. I mean, we've we kind of talked about it. And then we're also going to talk about um, a cool trick that you can utilize with what you now know with logic. So first of all, this new kind of doing logic is called appeal to the best explanation. And so here we're going to ask a question. We're going to say, here are all the possible different explanations to that question, answers to that question. And then we're going to say this one, the fourth one, that's the best one. Now, how do we know which explanation is the best one? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you five ways that you can know whether an explanation is the best one. Number one, does it explain a lot of different things? Number two, does it explain those things deeply? Not just at a surface level, but deeply. Does it really line up? Three, where does the evidence point? If all the evidence points to one of the conclusions, one of the explanations, that's powerful. That's important to know. Number four, which one has the least amount of Hail Marys? A Hail Mary is when you, in football, you know, the clock is ticking, you only have three seconds left, so you hike it, and everyone runs to the end zone, and the quarterback just throws it, hoping beyond hope that someone will catch it from his team, and it very rarely works. It's a hope and a dream. And oftentimes, explanations have hopes and dreams. Well, it all makes sense except this one thing. You'd have to assume this thing. I can't possibly prove it. Now, if an explanation has one of those, it's going to be superior to an explanation that has 10 of those in general. You have to factor in all five of these. And finally, number five, does the explanation agree with the other agreed upon truth that you have? So anytime you do the work of evaluating the evidence, and actually coming to a good, solid, sound, valid conclusion, you should use that in the future. And you should look at the, the set of options in front of you. And if two of the five options don't agree with all the previous work and conclusions that you've drawn, hopefully this is work that you've actually done well in an unbiased manner. You've actually come to it honestly. If those two don't agree with that conclusion, that's going to be a factor. Now, sometimes everything else points to, you know, uh, an explanation that doesn't agree with a previous conclusion. And so maybe you need to look back and go, maybe I got that conclusion wrong. It's kind of like a web. But remember, the web isn't how we know what is true. The web doesn't make something true. I'm arguing that the web of all these interconnected beliefs can be an indicator of truth if you've done your due diligence in evaluating evidence and making logically sound and valid arguments. That is a tongue tangler, man. So this is what makes an explanation good. Now we're going to look at this final thing. And if you know the 12, not 12, nine laws of logic, I was reading something on the screen that said 12. If you know the nine laws of logic, then you're going to be able to do this tactic. And this is a powerful tactic. And that, in fact, this tactic in my research on logic um, was something that actually was discovered before the nine laws of logic were really discovered. It was something that was implemented in literature before 
uh, Aristotle developed these important laws of logic. This is called reducing something to absurdity or reducing to absurdity. This isn't the original name. I've again brought this into English. I think it's originally called reductio ad absurdio or something like that. I may be getting that wrong. Here, what we're going to do is we're going to lay out some premises that we don't agree with, but that our opponent would agree with. Then, after we've asked them if they agree with these premises, we're going to demonstrate what the conclusions of these premises would be. And we're going to arrive at a place that just doesn't make any sense. So, the most common example of this is the law of non-contradiction, which states that A cannot equal not A. So if we arrive at a conclusion that says God is real and God is not real, well, we have a serious problem and we need to go back and look, where did we come off the rails? It's one of the premises that we thought was true, false. Do we have a presupposition that's false? Maybe we need to change something. This is really, really powerful. Let me give you an example of this. Premise one, we must love our fellow humans as ourselves. Premise two, if God does not exist, then our fellow men are just animals. Premise three, if our fellow men are just animals, we have no moral duty to love them as ourselves. And so from this, we can actually play this out step by step by step, and we can arrive at this conclusion where we say we have a moral duty to love our fellow neighbors, and we don't have a moral duty to love our fellow neighbors. And these can't both be true at the same time. It's not possible. It's against the law of non-contradiction. So we have to go back and we have to say, okay, which one of these premises do you want to sacrifice? And I think the atheist who is honest is going to come back and go, well, maybe God does exist. Because if God doesn't exist, then yeah, our fellow, I do think our fellow men are just animals if God doesn't exist. So maybe God does exist. Hmm. Interesting. Now, this isn't always going to make an atheist change their mind. Of course, an atheist doing this to a Christian, this isn't always going to make a Christian change their mind. If you do this properly, what it is going to do, however, is demonstrate that for the atheist, keeping their atheism is going to cost them something. You're going to have to change something to keep your atheism. And this is powerful. And so I want to encourage you, if you're interested in diving more into logic, reduction to absurdity is a great thing to practice and get good at because you can utilize it very effectively in conversations on the fly. Now, if you're interested more in logic and diving into some of those 10 other lessons, sometime in the next few years, I'm planning on making some kind of resource for young people that's going to cover logic in a deeper way, along with lots of other things related to theology. Something like a systematic theology for youth. I'm using this as an opportunity to do important research that hopefully can help me in authoring a book that is going to really make sense for young people on these topics. So make sure to subscribe to this podcast, this YouTube channel, so that you get all the updates of all the different episodes we're posting, as well as if it ever comes time to release that book, and to publish that book, that you can be the first one to hear about it. So put on the notification bell. That's it for this episode. Oh, I did need to tell you. I almost forgot. I almost made a promise and didn't keep it. Let me tell you the next little series we're launching into. Three weeks. We're going to be three weeks in the series, and we're going to be doing a series called Dead in the Water. And in the series called Dead in the Water, we're going to be actually looking at three questions 
that if the answer is a certain answer to these questions, then Christianity is broken, worthless, and we should stop pursuing it. So we're going to honestly ask these questions. And there's a lot on the line. If we answer one way, then we're going to just cancel this YouTube channel and YouTube video. And you should just not look for God. You should just not look for Jesus. But if we answer another way, then we know that it's wise to go down this road and to do this journey where we try to find God. We try to find truth. We try to find who God might be. We try to find what is true with regard to Christianity. So, dead in the water. We're going to spend three weeks there. There will be three podcast episodes posted. So, stay tuned. I hope this has proved useful to you. Please comment on this video or podcast. If this is helpful to you, please make sure to review the podcast on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts. That's it, y'all. This has been another episode of Theology for Teens. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you have a great week. Bye.